You are listening to the Horse Radio Network, part of the Equine Network family. You're listening to the Show Jumping Podcast, a fun and informative show for riders, owners, trainers, grooms, and fans of all levels. I'm Ashley Winch in Kansas City, Missouri. And I'm Christy McCormick in Saratoga Springs, New York. And you're listening to the Show Jumping Podcast, where we deliver at-home riding exercises to our listeners and chat with fellow horse enthusiasts about the world of show jumping. Today, we're joined by a former client and current friend of mine, Kate Chant. Kate is a trainer at her own barn, True North, in Kenora, Ontario, and is currently showing in Wellington, Florida for the winter. Hi, Kate. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thanks for having me. Can you give our listeners a little bit of your horse background? Definitely. So it's actually a little bit of a mystery how I first became interested in horses because I grew up in the city and nobody in my family rode. But I was always obsessed with them. I desperately wanted to become a show jumper, and I wanted to read and learn everything there was to know about horses. So I started riding lessons when I was eight, and I got my first pony when I was 12, but it was very much a backyard situation. I didn't have anybody knowledgeable helping me, and I rode in a synthetic dressage saddle that I jumped in, and my bridle was bright orange because I didn't know you were supposed to oil tack. (laughs) So you're (laughs) self-taught. (laughs) did go very much self-taught. And when I did eventually move to a show barn, it was a steep learning curve in the sense of learning to actually do things properly. And I think so. We all start somewhere and you have to have empathy for those people because we can't pretend we haven't been there. Yes, exactly. Everybody has to start somewhere. Nobody comes into this knowing what the hell they're doing. Exactly. And I came into the industry as far as the show circuit pretty late compared to a lot of people who have a successful junior career. So at 15 or 16, I was still doing the two six hunters and I eventually moved up to the junior hunters and the equitation in my last junior year. So I did get the chance to do what I wanted to do, but just sort of scraping by, you know, through the skin of my teeth and then took five or six years off riding completely when I aged out and went to college. And then that's when I went to you, right? When you were in college. Um, in Boston, right? And you went to what school again? I went to Wheaton College in Massachusetts. And at the time, my parents made it clear they weren't willing to pay my tuition and horse shows. But I had one horse who was sort of tricky to ride and he never would have passed a vet check. So I got to keep him because he was impossible to sell. And I still got to do a couple horse shows a year, one or two day shows with you, Christy. And that was a really fun time. And then that was, that, that was so fun. Little Cedric was a little, um, he was a challenge for us to work with, I would say, but I loved working with him. He was, I love horses that are not straightforward because they give you problems you have to solve. So I thought that so, was really fun. And you are, you are such an actual problem solver, you know, in your, in your personality. So I think we, we really hit it off and had a good time. Exactly. I think we had a lot in common that way. And Cedric was one of those horses. And I seem to attract these horses where they make you want to pull your hair out working with them. But then they have such wonderful personalities that they sort of endear themselves to you anyway. And that's been the kind of horse I think that keeps coming back to me in my life. 
Yeah, that's a that is a great segue to my first question. Um, is what you, what do you value in horses? And I think the more specifically, what did you value as a kid and growing up versus what you value now? So we're we're talking now that college was what for you? Uh, Fifteen? A very 10 long, years ago? a long time ago. I think okay. yeah, very long is relative. So, well, long enough. <laughs> At least a decade. Let's say that. Yeah. Right? Okay. Um. I mean, I know the personalities of horses that I've worked with with you, and certainly I've had a, a what seems like a billion over the years. Uh, what what have you what did you value then, um, and what do you, what do you value now? In these so animals? I I think that I don't know that I've changed that much over time, but I think that looking back on it, when I was a junior specifically, I was very outcome oriented. I think like mm-hmm. a lot of kids, I really wanted to go to medal finals. And the equitation was sort of the standout goal for me. And that's really what provided a lot of structure for me in wanting to be all in in the industry. And then as an adult, and specifically the way that I do it now, where I don't have my amateur status, but realistically, I'm not going to have a career in the Grand Prix. I'm never going to be, you know, on a Nations Cup team. I think that I've learned to appreciate the process a lot more and just the time spent with horses and getting to know them and developing them as individuals. And I think that's something that sort of carried me through the sport in the different iterations that have been involved in it. Yeah. I think the individuality that the horses bring to us is uh, really important. We live in a sport that's so uh, standardized or we we're trying to standardize it. And I, I just think that that doesn't really work for each individual horse that we, we, um, we train, you know, I think, as for me as a kid, I, I don't know if I was outcome oriented, but I was, I was quantity oriented. Like I wanted to ride the most, you know, I want to ride all the time and I wanted to see how many horses, you know, I could get my hands on. And I wasn't a wealthy kid either. I, I needed to, you know, go by the favors of other professionals who would, you know, exchange maybe some work for a horse to ride or even, let me, you know, try to sell their horse for them while they're letting me show it. And I think that not understanding that each horse, or I'm sorry, understanding that each horse was very different took me a long time to figure out. And I realized that taking the time to know their personality, you know, on the ground, meaning if we're not in the tack and how they, how they not just want to be treated, but how they interact with humans and that, personality that we sort of push to the side sometimes and say, no, you have to do it this way is, is so important. I think that's such a good point. And I think too, so often in the hunter jumper industry, we look at a horse and we think we're understanding them by knowing whether it would prefer to be a hunter or a jumper or an equitation sure, horse. Yeah. And I think at the end of the day, not every horse wants to be a horse, a show horse. And the ones that no. do are really doing us a big favor by participating and trying to help us meet our end goals because a horse never wakes up and wants to win junior hunter finals. Exactly. They don't even, they have the time. They don't understand why we're even there doing that, you know, and why they have to be lunch for an hour in the morning before we get on them. And um, imagine how confusing that must be to them, especially those who we try to put the, not to be cliche, but I'm going to be, but, you know, put the round peg in a square hole and say, you look the part of this. So let's make you into this, you know, type 
And instead of letting the horses teach us, I've had to learn a lot about not putting expectations on horses that are so high that they can't even deliver, you know, halfway. Sometimes we get some jumpers in the barn that just don't want to do it. And you go, okay, well, maybe you want to be a dressage horse and not jump, but you know, you're very talented on the flat. And, but that's hard to learn. That takes a lot of courage to say, you know, to, to stop the train, if you will, and say, we're, we're going to change course here. I think that took me a really long time to learn too, because looking back on it and looking at Cedric, who was sort of the prototype of a difficult horse, I made him do things and he was kind enough to humor me in doing them (laughs) because those were my goals. But if I had that same horse today, I don't think I would be jumping him around a meter 20 course because he made it pretty clear that it was not going to be on his terms if we made it all the way around. So (laughs) I think sometimes we lose sight of what's best for the horse when we're trying to reach our own goals and we're sort of laser focused on what matters the most to us. Right. I mean, how many times we have to fall off, uh, you know, whether a horse stops at a jump or spooks because they're not comfortable in a certain environment before we go, oh, maybe we should adapt to the horse instead of making forcing them adapt to us. You know, they like you said, they were so privileged to have any horses that that at least, you know, behave a little bit the way we want them to. And so listening to them. And like you said, individually is is just really crucial to going forward in any way. I mean, sometimes I wish that we didn't have to ask horses to do these crazy things. We could just let them be animals in a field. And the business side of that is not going to work that way. But um, I I appreciate people like you who can at least learn that at a, at a young enough age to then adjust your own expectations as you go. That's a very humbling and important part of the sport. Yeah. So, so uh, you also have a you have a second career that you've um, gone through, isn't that right? I do. Yes, and I came about modeling in the complete opposite way of how I got involved in horses. Did you? So okay, I had so. no interest at all in the fashion industry or being a model or anything to do with fashion, really. But I got scouted by a photographer when I was on the subway at 17. And I remember. Okay, so we're talking, at- you're you're kind of near the end of your junior career, right? Right. Yeah. Before I, college. Exactly. I had one year of high school left. I was, yeah, in my last junior year, second to last junior year. So completely focused on horses, 100% obsessed with them. That was the only thing I cared about. And I was on the subway on my way home from school. And a photographer came up to me and asked if I had ever thought about modeling. And were you totally and, surprised or was that something that was sort of, you know, that was that was maybe in the back of your mind as a, like a pipe dream someday? Oh, no, I was 100 percent surprised. Okay. I saw this man staring at me and I thought, I'm getting murdered today. Like, this is the end. <laughs> Did <laughs> you pull out your mace before? Minutes. Yeah, <laughs> I was ready to just hop off the subway train. And then my second thought there was, well, you know, if I have any kind of success modeling, maybe I could buy myself a horse that actually wants to do the job. Perhaps there you go. Right. The, the meter 40 isn't out of reach for me. If I'm good at it and I make some money, this could be a means to an end for me where I can become even further invested in horses. Okay. So still riding horses motivated you to pursue modeling. A hundred percent. It was your always end goal. Okay. Got yes, it. a pursuit of something horse related has kind of directed all my life choices. 
So I did end up trying modeling. I signed with an agency. I had a pretty successful modeling career. I did it basically full-time for 10 years in um, the United States and in Europe. And I had a lot of cool experiences that way, but it never felt like something that I was really naturally inclined to do. So I was a little bit like the horse that you're forcing to go to the show. And, when but, I was a model. and you were modeling at a pretty high level, right? I mean, you were traveling to, like you said, you went to Europe, um, you were on magazine covers, right? You, you represented some I, these pretty cool fashion brands. Am I, am I right? Exactly. In that? I totally had a really successful high-end career that I probably didn't deserve when it came down to it. It was just sheer luck that the right people at the right time took an interest in me. And the whole time, I think I battled a kind of imposter syndrome modeling because mm -hmm. unlike riding where you can work to actually improve your skill set and your knowledge of horses and be a better rider physically yeah. with modeling, it all felt like playing pretend. Uh, yeah. I was going to ask, did you find any, was it an escape from riding at all? Did you find any, any parallels, you know, to, from riding to modeling? I think that as far as the two, two relating, relating to each other, I probably would have been more successful in either industry had I been willing to just completely give up the other thing. But okay. I was intent on doing both. So I always had one foot kind of in each door. And I did learn things that benefited me in the other career. So one thing that comes to mind is as a model, you become really cognizant all the time of what other people think of you and how you're perceived by other mm. people. And I never had a ton of natural self-confidence or poise. I was never, you know, a particularly graceful person, but I did learn to fake it until you make it and yeah. embrace the idea that people don't notice your insecurities if you're not acting insecure about them. And I think that sure. that really translated to riding for me because I tell my students all the time, a horse doesn't actually know whether or not you're nervous. They only know if you're sitting up and you're breathing and your leg is on, you could be the most scared rider. And if you're acting confident, that's enough to fool them. So just that idea of embracing confidence that didn't come naturally has definitely helped me in both careers. Yeah, that's huge. I mean, how often do we talk about confidence in riding and that not just not just to show the horse what we're doing, but to show ourselves what we're doing. And <clears throat> half the time, half the time, none of us know what the hell we're doing up there. We're riding a four-legged an animal that we think we've trained the right way. And, you know, you hope that at each moment they're really in tune with you around the course, but you and I have all experienced the, the, the other effect when they, they change, they change course. And yeah, confidence is is everything, especially when especially when you don't think you have it. And I think that's true in life too. You gotta you gotta pretend that you know what the hell's going on and what you're doing in order to have any sense of confidence. Exactly. And I can remember listening to an interview with McLean Ward where he said he sometimes throws up, he's so nervous before a big Grand Prix. Mm. And I remember being so surprised by that because you are in your head thinking you're the only person who feels that way. And in reality, other people have just found a way to embody confidence to get the job done. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. What got you out of modeling? Did you just want to do horses full time? It was sort of an unintentional segue for me where my career sort of fizzled out around the same time as the pandemic because it just wasn't realistic to be flying places for jobs. Nobody was shooting anything in studios. And I had gotten to the point where I was living in Kenora, which is 24 hours from where I grew up in Toronto. 
So I always had to fly to jobs. It was never just a one day thing. And the pandemic made it so that wasn't really a possibility. So at that point, I sort of became more involved with the horses on a full time scale. And it got to the point where I was so involved in both that I really had to pick one. And the horses, you can do a lot longer, I think, than modeling, which has sort of an, an age cap on when you can be successful. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I've seen some of your photos. They're incredible. And you look, you look like you have all the confidence in the world. I'll say that. Um, it's, did you find any parallels? Uh, This is, this is really like, I'm interested in this. Did you find any parallels with modeling and, you know, where you're in an industry where you're showing off, you know, you're, you're supposed to be sort of in almost perfect form, right? To show off the fashion that you're displaying. And then sometimes we, at least in the hunters, we dress these horses up to be as perfect as they can be. Did you find any parallels there and could take what you maybe didn't like from modeling and apply it to, to what we ask of the horses? You know, I don't think that at the time that would have crossed my mind, but in hindsight, I certainly have a lot of empathy Mm -hmm. for horses because you really are like a show pony when you're a model in the sense that your diet is decided for you, your appearance is decided for you, Mm -hmm. what you're wearing, your schedule. When it comes down to it, you don't have a lot of autonomy. And I don't think that's really very different from what we ask of a hunter that's waking up at 5 a.m. to go lunch so they're quiet right. enough. And then we're going to raid you with this really uncomfortable hairstyle. Yes. You, take you have to perform and it doesn't matter if it's hot or cold or you don't like mm-hmm. how your girth feels on you or what the rider is doing. At the end of the day, there are so many similarities there. And even if it's yeah. not something I was thinking of at the time, I'm sure that that's helped me develop the sort of empathetic perspective that I have towards horses and all animals generally. Right. Well, and you're such an animal advocate. I know that, um, you know, on the side as well. So it's hard. I just think it's hard not to see once you've been through an experience like that, where you're sort of, you're, you're as a model put on display and how we, how we treat these horses. And again, I'm not, we, we, you and I treat the horses or we're, we're part of a community that treats horses as well as they, you know, can be treated. Obviously we take care of their legs. We take care of, we, we select their diets to be their healthiest, not just their prettiest. You know, we try to really make sure that they're cared for as well as possible. Um, and that really ultimately should be, if we're going to put them in any athletic endeavor, that should be the first priority. Um, it's just sort of an interesting parallel, I think, and stepping back from, from the show world just a little bit in my shoes, I see that so clearly now, whereas you're right when you're in it, you don't even, you don't think about it. You know, you're like, yeah, this is what we do. We go to the ring and, you know, if we don't have 40 braids, we have 45. And if we don't have, um, you know, the whitest coat or the shiniest boots, then we need to make them shinier. And it's, it just sometimes makes me question what are we, what are the priorities in, in our sport sometimes these days as far as uh, are we working on how valuable the horse is in its athleticism or are we working on how, how beautiful they are? And maybe they can coincide, but, um, I just, I wanted to know how you felt, you know, being a model and doing that. I think it's so interesting that you brought that up because I never would have thought of it that way. But then you look at it and like, for me, I think of the number of times that I've, you know, had to twitch a horse or trank them to clip them. And at the end of the day, what does it really matter if they have fuzzy ears? 
Right. But, I mean, th- there's a, there's a biological reason for them to have fuzzy ears, and we just take that right off because it looks exactly. it looks good. <laughs> By the same token, I can remember going to modeling jobs where the agency would specifically put in bold on the email where you got your schedule: make sure you're fully waxed. You can't have any oh. body hair going into the really. Job. So oh it's one of those things where these industries oh. that are built around an external experience or you know, the appearance of something yeah. don't always take into consideration what's best for the person or animal being subjected to it. And right. so many of the things that we do with horses are tied into these sort of archaic traditions where we've just standardized things and we say, this is the way it has to be done. And yeah. in the time that I was in the modeling industry, and I do think this has changed a little bit, it was very much the same in that everybody was expected to wear the same size clothes and have the mm-hmm. same measurements. Yeah. And when it came down to it, there wasn't a lot of consideration for how that was affecting people who didn't naturally fit into that mold. Sure, sure, exactly. I mean, I can only imagine the torture that would bring on uh, with knowing, you know, you have a shoot coming up and you are, you know, afraid to not just put on weight, but you might have to lose a few pounds and fit into that <clears throat> that outfit. And I think that we, I mean, even for riders, you know, I do think the standards are, they're widened now in terms of what is what is a, I mean, obviously we're riding horses, so we want to be of an, a, of an appropriate weight for them on their backs, but, you know, look at the, look how the fashion industry has changed in riding. We have, we still have these very, very traditional outfits. Um, but at least we're allowing for, you know, we have stretch jackets and we have, we don't encourage everybody to be just stick thin in order to do well. And at least in the juniors in the equitation. Definitely. And I think even, you know, having zippers in our boots, we've really come a long way. Yeah. Isn't that silly? We've come so far because we have zippers in our calf calf height boots. Come on. (laughs) Our moms don't have to pull us out of our field boots after every horse. I remember that, like being on my back going, please pull these off. And it was just torture at the end of of a day riding. Oh, Yeah. So we, we have made some advances. I, I just would like to love, I would love to see the industry keep doing that in terms of what's best for the horse. I thought one of a, one of the greatest things about COVID was no braiding. I mean, and imagine how the horses must've felt. I don't know if they were, they're smart enough to realize what they, you know, the freedom they had and their, and it sounds so silly, but not braiding, going to the hunter ring, a kind of made everyone a little more on a, on the same playing field. Um, and B was probably t- way more comfortable for the horses and C made, made putting them away uh, uh, so much easier. I think the other thing too was eliminating the jog during yes. COVID. I can remember waiting with my children's hunter at the ring for like 120 trips to go just in case I made the cutoff and I'd be there thinking, oh, okay, I scored an 84.5. So the cutoff right now is 81. I better stay up here just in case. Sure. And I think it's crazy in hindsight that we didn't just start jogging a circle on a loose rein at the end 10 or 15 years ago. Exactly. Exactly. How many hours have have horses spent at the ring when they should have been put away back at the barn in their stalls, put to bed. And instead we're just, and, and I, and I understand, obviously we want to make sure they're all sound, but you're right. That, that could have easily, the rule of trotting at the end of a course could have easily been, um, enforced years ago. So at least, at least COVID gave us a couple of those things. It would have been nice if, if we had to, you know, have a little bit more relaxation on the, 
uh, wardrobe we have to wear, but we'll get there, maybe. I, I still think that. I can't believe that in the year of 2024, we're still putting our hair in our helmets. Right? Putting our hair in our helmets, wearing these sort of, you know, tweed-looking jackets, whether they are stretch or not. And... I mean, every other sport in our in in life has turned to athleticism, wear that that supports athleticism. And I don't feel there's nothing athletic about the way I feel when I put on a show, a show coat. Yeah, I would agree with that. And then oddly, my husband, who was a professional hockey player, sure, had a completely yeah. different opinion when I expressed that thought one day. And oh, he what said, was that? I don't know why you think you're so special. Every sport has a uniform. Has he ever, has he, wait, wait, I know your husband. Has Mike ever put on this uniform though? Let's, I let's think go he back. Should, and he I should before he expresses <laughs> an opinion on it. I did sort of see what he was getting at, but I still think we could do it in a more athletic fabric. He was a professional hockey player. He got to wear a jersey and loose pants. We have to wear as tight clothing fitting clothing as I think I've ever put on. And it's not like yoga clothing it's it's hot and double layered and um i think that's our next job is to get mike to um have an outfit that he should wear and by the way if mike does listen to this um i love his opinions about riding because usually they're so they're so accurate in terms of a, of a non-horse person looking at what we do and making sense trying to make sense of it all um but the outfit it, it is a uniform i'll give him that but i would love a more comfortable outfit I'm with you on that one. I think there's room for improvement. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, another question I wanted to ask you was, you know, you're spending your winters in Wellington and then you sort of flip the scale and go north to a small town uh, community in the summertime. What, you know, most of our, li- I guess we have listeners from all all places, but if the li- uh, the listeners who are in more of that small town mm-hmm. Uh, riding uh, environment, what kind of value can you pick out in what you get to experience in the summer um, for people who get to sit, you know, don't get to experience, and I shouldn't even say get to, it's not like Wellington's such, you know, an amazing place. It just happens to be the busiest because that's where the warm weather is. Um, You know, can you compare what you value in each place for riding? Absolutely. So I love the summertime. I love the, I guess, For me, it's the off season with my horses, what would typically be summer's show season, because I tend to show more when I'm in Wellington. But for me, the biggest difference when I'm at home is just the sheer amount of time spent with my horses. Mm. So I do all my own care. I coach myself. I coach my students. I take care of the farm, do the stalls. I trailer the horses myself. So I spend days on the road with them going to horse shows. And I just think that the relationship you develop with a horse when you're that involved in their care and their day-to-day life far exceeds anything you get to experience even in the highest end full care program at a typical show barn. So the benefits of showing locally and being involved in the industry on that scale for me have been so rewarding and it's the best part of having a life with horses and being involved with them. And I don't think either that that's something that only applies to me because I know when I'm at local shows, I see a lot of kids who are up early braiding their own horses when I'm the one who gets up at 5 a.m. 
to launch my own horses at a big show, mm-hmm. it's usually me and a lot of grooms. Whereas at home, you see a lot of people doing their own care and they have that intimate knowledge of the horse and they understand how to dig in a little bit and train a horse and have that do-it-yourself mentality. And I just think that type of horsemanship is such a wonderfully valuable skill and something that is honestly lost on people who only get to participate in the industry as a client in that typical full care or show barn setting. There's so many valuable things you learn from being involved in your horse's care. And for me, you can't put a price tag on that kind of experience. Sure. And it goes back to getting to know the horse's personalities individually. I think in a place like Wellington, that becomes a bit of a marathon for for everybody, for riders and trainers and grooms. It's just always about getting the day finished and, you know, going, and I wouldn't say going through the motions all the time. We're all there to keep improving, you hope, but you don't, there's no, there's very little time to spend on, on getting to know your horses. And I think, I agree. I think the, if your summer is spent showing at a level where you're in charge of your own horse and you're not relying on, and like you said, you're, so you're in a show barn situation in Wellington and then you're totally in charge in the summertime, right? Yeah, exactly. So I'm at two complete opposite spectrums. Sure. And yeah, I think the the more intimately that you can know your horse, the the better the better you're going to understand what to ask of them. I think that goes back to that that as well. So I I just hope that while everyone's in Florida and while everyone's enjoying that show that they can take the time to step back and notice how their horse behaves outside the show ring. I think that's such a big, big deal. We all focus on what the ring can produce. And sometimes that's usually, usually actually not sometimes, usually that's the, the consequence of all of the actions that happen outside the ring. And we tend to look at it in the reverse. So um, I love that you love summers. I, I love that summers are a calmer place for horses to you know, ha- have that, or for us to enjoy the horses. Um, how is your Wellington going so far? It's been really good. I love being in Florida, just from a sense of the sheer access to help that I have here, because I really do have to dig in and be self-reliant the rest of the year. Yeah. So to have because you live in the, on the ground in no place yeah. ever. Yeah. Exactly. Like beyond it just being nice out here, having people who can help me and an eye on the ground and feedback and encouragement and the sort of community that you develop being a client at a barn has been really nice. And it also just affords me a level of time in my life outside of horses that doesn't exist at home the way that I do things. Right. You get to spend more time because someone else is doing the work. There's the flip side, right? Because someone not doing the work, but doing the the groundwork or taking care of of your horse that you get to have more time to yourself. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's pluses and minuses to both sides of it. Um, I think that it's, it's, it's just so refreshing to hear you talk about keeping your horse's personality in the forefront of your mind, especially as you, you know, you go forward and we're all on this bit of a process and learning about ourselves on the, on the horse and the relationship we have with them teaches us every day. And I mean, that's why I still do it, as I still try to let horses teach me about myself. And hopefully I can bring something to their lives. And if that, you know, can be on a 
on a cohesive path together, fantastic. And so it's it's nice to see that carried on to um, what you're doing as well, especially especially of one of my former students. So it's really nice to see. Exactly. And I think if you're doing it for the love of the horse, you can never be too disappointed. Whereas if you're doing it in pursuit of goals for yourself as an athlete or even for the partnership you have with the horse, that leaves a lot of room where the outcome is different from what you were hoping for. Whereas if you're just there because you love spending time with your horse and you love the animal, that's always something to fall back on. Yeah, well, they're right in your answer the last, you know, five minutes here. And I asked how your Wellington was going. Not once did you say, oh, it's great. I won this class, you know, last week or I I didn't do well in this class. You know, the result should be just just the last thing that we all think about and and how it's going with your horse as a relationship with them should be first. So you're clearly doing it. I applaud that. Thank you. <laughs> I learned it from you. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> Um, well, great. This has been fantastic. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I do, I do miss seeing you in Wellington and Mike, and I do miss hearing, um, Mike isms and, and how he, how I love when I love hearing someone's opinion about what they see in the horse world, because I think we, we have such a weird, unique sport that we try to make you know, not weird. And I think it's awesome to hear some some people when they can watch what we're doing and kind of give us a little reality check. Um, I don't have anything. And of course, right the second to mind what he said in the past, but sometimes I know what you've said to me is just, it's, it's a, it's a great perspective. Like he has always devastatingly accurate takes. You can spend <laughs> 20 years in an industry just trying to learn more. And he's been, you know, just watching for a couple of years and can watch something and just pinpoint the source of a problem or why somebody is doing so much better than someone else. In 30 seconds. You're like, yes. It. I, mean, it so simply. I think I think at one point we were dealing, you and I were dealing with your horse that had a had trouble with a particular jump. And I remember you telling me that, you know, a few days in, Mike said, you know, he just doesn't like the color blue. Does he have to jump that color? <laughs> that's you're right. Why does he have to jump blue? I know there are blue jumps in the ring, and that's we're not really always in charge of what they are, but wouldn't that be so great if we could just take what we're what we're talking about and adapt to each horse and just give them what what they want to do and not what what we want them to do? <laughs> exactly. And I think sometimes that outlook just informs our problem solving too, because you can spend all week trying to find the right bit or trying yep. to establish more rideability on a certain track. And when it comes down to it, sometimes it's just exposing your horse more. To what we expect of them that's standing out to them because they don't count strides. They just see what they're looking at and try right. to guess what we're telling them to do. They don't know what a distance is. They're just, they're just taking off when it's time to get to the jump, you know? So exactly. <laughs> we, we, maybe the lesson we need to learn is how to, how to adapt to them. Exactly. Not, I think, the other way I think that really should be everyone's motto. It should. Exactly. That's the theme for this podcast. Yes. Uh, all right. Well, I won't take up any more of your time um, on your day off, but thank you very much for joining. And please do say hi to Mike. Um, and I may ask you to come back on the podcast again in the future. I would love to. This has been really fun. Thank you Great. for having me. Okay. Thanks, Kate. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye. Bye. I love how you and Kate both touched on prioritizing taking care of our equine partners and valuing their well-being, which our title sponsor, Reline GI, can help with.
Reline GI is a natural long-term alternative that goes beyond masking symptoms. This unique blend of gut-friendly hyaluronin and wellness-boosting beta-glucan works with your horse's body to soothe and protect their digestive system. Unlike traditional therapies that can disrupt digestion and nutrient absorption, Reline GI leaves your horse's natural balance intact. But don't take our word for it. Reline GI is field-tested by leading veterinarians and backed by peer-reviewed research, including a study by Dr. Nathan Slovis, showing it effectively reduces gastric ulcers in active horses. Plus, it's clean, sport certified, safe for competition use. Don't forget to use code SJP at checkout for 10% off, linked in our show notes. This past weekend, I was able to teach a clinic at Wildwood Farm in Westford, Massachusetts, where trainer Lexi Horlacher has a lovely group of students. Um, I had a wonderful time there. We set a course that was a figure eight in their indoor ring, and we had two diagonal jumps set up, an end jump as a cavaletti, and then at the opposite end, we had three jumps in a row that were set on a turn as bounces. So the bounces were about nine feet to nine feet uh, in between each jump, and that, but they were set on, on an angle. So you came in on a bit of an angle, the center jump was perpendicular to the end of the ring, and then the third one coming out was on, a, on an angle as well as at a turn. And then we added an outside line um, on one side. And it was a very straightforward course that asked a lot of questions and everybody did so well. I loved, my favorite group actually was um, a, a group that were, you know, 10 and 11 year olds. And while they didn't have to do the most difficult track, which was the whole figure eight uh, all put together, including the outside line, they really nailed everything I asked of them. And they we worked on how you could collect to the end jumps and go forward to the diagonal jumps. And I had a great time. Um, I even got to ride one of their nice, cute hunters uh, who's young and coming along and brought me back a little few memories from being in the hunter ring. So it, it was lovely. Um, I can't thank Lexi enough for having me uh, and her students were were a treat to teach. So I'm looking forward to going back. Now, Christy, I was recently on the HRN Horse Lovers Cruise, and actually one of our auditors asked where they could find you. They were interested in a clinic. So what is the best way for our listeners, if they were interested in hosting you, getting a hold of you? They just need to look me up on Facebook. I have messages there that I can easily check. Um, so if you either go on our Facebook group, which is overheard on the show jumping podcast, you should be able to find my profile on there or just type in the, in the search bar, Christy McCormick, I have a profile and send me a private message. And I, I'm always looking for new places to host a clinic or to, to be hosted at a clinic. So, um, I would love to hear from anybody who's, who's interested in having a group that I can teach. Yeah. Especially if it's like somewhere warmer, right? <laughs> Uh, that's even better. Yeah. Double <laughs> half off if you want to get me somewhere warm in the winter months. <laughs> oh, that's great. I, I love, you know, there is something still magical to me about seeing 
and, and I hope no one takes offense, seeing little girls on their ponies going around the ring with their hearts in it. It's just, it it does. It takes you back to why, you know, when you fell in love with the sport and just the magic of it, it's, it's just, it's special. It does. And clinics are such a great place for me to get to share my knowledge with a variety of groups of riders. I mean, and clinics aren't supposed to be just for the, you know, most elite group of the bunch. They're actually meant to be as teaching clinics relatable for everybody. And I have to say, going back to how you just said, can people, how can people contact me? I, I didn't know Lexi until I had showed up. I showed up for her clinic, but she reached out on Facebook um, and asked if I would have time. And it ended up that her farm was very close by to a farm where a former um, employee of mine currently works. And she ended up bringing some horses over to join the clinic as well, which was so great. And it was such a nice full circle moment for me to see this girl who's now in a training position um, have her own kids there. And it was, it was just fun. So I, I, clinics are such a great place to see where kids are starting uh, and, if you haven't seen any, you know, kind of potential in them to encourage them along. So yeah. And any, any new faces are, are, are a great part of my day. I love that. And, you know, talking about full circle moments, we are both very excited to bring back our question and answer segment. And from one of our previous episodes, you had on an international rider and we talked about some of the differences in competing overseas versus competing here in America. So this question comes from Nicola, who is a UK listener and a part of our Facebook group overheard on the Show Jumping podcast. And she wrote in uh, a couple extra questions. Um, She was wondering about holding up rings while waiting for your trainer and the expenses of US shows. And just off the bat, you know, myself, obviously being an American writer with most of my experience competing here in America, I was in Italy at a regional show and I was waiting for my trainer to get to the warm up ring and, mm-hmm. you know, waiting for him to say, okay, Ashley, and, you know, adjust the fence to be my height and all the things that we come to expect, at least most of the time here in the States in the school, in the warm up ring. And there was probably, I don't know, let's say 30 other horses and riders, you know, going around, walk, trot, canter, warming up. And he gets there and he was kind of frazzled and Italian. And I love Matteo as the day is long. And he's just like, Ashley, what are you waiting for? You are next up. You must do hurry. And I'm like, okay, but like, what fence? Because there's just three verticals in the middle of a sea of horses all going at various speeds. And I already have so much anxiety to begin with. He's like, jump, jump, vai, vai, which means go, go in Italian. And I'm like, okay. And so I just leave the herd and I go pop over the fence two times. And he's like, okay, we are ready. Let's go. And <laughs> off we go and in the ring and we go around and and it was fine, but I was absolutely terrified christy like sure i was so overwhelmed you're used to to, like you said that you know your trainer setting your own jump for you and waiting for you to be ready exactly that's not how it works over there you either are ready or you're not you're going in or you're not and um i think we talked a little bit about the schooling area um on that podcast and and i'm sure um, Nicola from the UK is wondering about how the unit, you know, if she's had any experience now here, 
being in the States, wait, you know, holding up rings is something that is so uh, just inter it interrupts the day, but it happens all the time. And it happens because of that exact reason that these students are so reliant on their trainers that they do need. And that's how our American system is pretty set up for, um, it's where the trainers are handholding the entire time in the schooling area. And we are, and, and believe me, I have been those students. I need my (laughs) trainer to tell me what to do and when and how, or I think I do. Right. And the the lack of independence is, is a little startling. However, it's, it's how our system works. And so what is an interesting point that sometimes the exhibitors don't see uh, is the work that goes into, org- especially a busy trainer with multiple students in a barn and at horse shows with multiple rings. I mean, I remember spending at least half an hour to 40 minutes on my computer the night before that, you know, night before each day at the horse show organizing. And I was one of those people that I really loved getting to know the ingate guys or the ingate girls and the staff at the horse show that, that runs, run the ingates is so valuable at a horse show. So if I could get chummy enough with them for them to give me their number, I would text them at night and say, Hey, this is my tentative plan. I know my student goes in your class at maybe 10 o'clock. I have to do a B and C at nine 30. This is how I'm going to try to get to you. And most of the time that's very appreciated on the Ingate side because it helps them organize their day. And in a perfect world, everybody just flows beautifully through the show and no, and no ring is held up ever where that doesn't happen. And so <laughs> it's, it's just, it's interesting to me to watch the Ingate people communicate with each other. And that's possibly the difference between a B show and an A plus show and how it's run. Um, there are definitely some shows where Ingate crew don't communicate with each other. And there are so many trainers who think it's easiest to sort of get up and float through their day. And I, that boggles my mind. I'm really a very much a type A organizational person. So I need to have a plan. And when it doesn't go as planned, I need to have a correction right away. So I can see though the frustration in in exhibitors when the ring is held up and you're wondering why that happens. Well, it happens because it happens because of disorganization on the trainer's part. And it also happens because many times students need some more time in the warm-up ring and they're not ready to go in. And if the horse show is kind to them, they will let the ring be on hold until they go in. And if they're a busy, if it's, if they're having a busy day, they might not, but that's a complicated answer to the difference between <laughs> Uh, show, you know, holding up the ring in Europe and holding up the ring here, which holding up the ring in Europe just doesn't exist. It's, oh, no. It's just not part of it, one bit. You're done. Like, there is no oh. holding up the you, ring. You miss which, your turn. You just don't go if you're not ready. You so. know, I, I could see, I don't know. I'm, I think that there's a happy medium there somewhere. Uh, sure, yeah. We just, you know, nobody's bothered to find it quite yet. The best horse shows can work with trainers to allow for some gray areas when they're, you know, because things happen at the sure. ring courses, loose shoes, you know, um, riders fall off in the schooling area, their problems happen, you know, and there have been times where I have had to go to the in-gate person and said, I need more time. I'm mm-hmm. not going to be ready with my student. And that's a tough, sometimes you get a look like, are you effing kidding me right now? <laughs> because they need me to go in the ring. And sometimes they're chill and they go, Hey, it's all right. Take as much time as you need. So I think the best way to prevent that would be communication for sure. But 
we we all need to strive for a little better communication, in my opinion. And and treating each other with, you know, respect and kindness yes, goes a long exactly. way. Exactly. It really does. Um, yeah. So well, thank you for that question, uh, Nicola. And I hope I'm saying your name right. <laughs> yes, me too. From Sorry. the opposite side of the pond. <laughs> I, I love that someone wrote in from, from the UK. And next uh, up. What's our next question? Sure. Cheryl from Michigan asks, I do not compete in Florida during the winter. I'm a working adult. Same girl. Uh, any suggestions mm. to keep my horse in good form riding in an indoor all winter? Good exercises? Or how can I prep for the spring show season? Well, I am currently helping some students who are staying home or staying north in the wintertime. And I have, um, as I've said, had most winters be spent in Florida and I have to say, I'm loving getting to be creative and figuring out different exercises to use in the indoor. And it's tough. You're limited space. Um, you are usually riding in pretty cold weather. Sometimes you have to skip riding if it's too cold to really exercise your horse. But the best thing I can suggest are t- take pieces of what you're going to see in the summer when you horse show in, a, in terms of a course and set them and really try to master them. We don't usually have the time when we're showing to master certain elements. And for example, I set just two diagonal lines uh, the other week and we spent two weeks on them and we spent how to come forward out of the turn and adjust in the line. We spent time on how to be dead straight. You know, an indoor has walls that you can use and, and markers that you can have help uh, straight, you know, at least visually try to keep your horse as straight as possible, doing different number of strides in each line. Um, I think that the, the, it's hard to set a full show course inside. So doing anything that can break down what parts of the course are parts that you have trouble with, uh, at home or at, at horse shows, you can work on at home. And maybe that's just a, single jump out of the turn and you have all of this space, you know, by itself to use and just repeat that until you love it. Um, you can also use gymnastics. That's a great way to keep your horse fit jumping wise. That's a great use of the space in an indoor where you don't have a lot of, uh, striding available, but if you can set two or three jumps in a row that are one or two jumps, you know, one or two strides apart and they don't have to be big. They can be small. They can be about two, six, maybe two, nine or three foot high and work on your own position and work on keeping your weight balanced down in your heel and work on your back being nice and flat and your eyes up those kind of little things that we, again, don't address all the time on course. And when you're prepping for the spring show season, Think about your horse's fitness. Think about what you're going to be asking them uh, cardiovascularly when you get to the course. You know, ride your horse and work on an open stride as much as you can. Sometimes in indoors, we get really tight and slowing down. So gallop down the long side. Let them, you know, get a good canter. Have someone check on you to make sure that they can agree that you're going the same speed that you would go over a course. It's easy to think you're going fast enough, but you're really not. So... Adding your elements of each part that you're going to address at the horse show um, is my advice for using the best of your time over the winter. Now, Christy, I think you got in a couple questions that are around a theme that we we spoke about in one of our previous episodes talking about distances. But I'd love for you to get back into that because I think no matter how often you practice finding distances, we all mess up. At least I do. 
Yes. Um, and, you know, as far as finding good distances goes, it's as professionals, we all think that there, it just happens and it doesn't. It, it first goes back to those first couple of podcasts I did when I talked about pace and track that you got to master that you got to know how fast you're going and how slow you're going and you got to be in control of it. Um, and you also have to steer. So steering and pace, you know, brakes, gas, and each side of the reins, those are, those are the four things, four aids that you really need to understand what to do. If you have a pretty good feeling of those and are still feel like your distances are mm, questionable, or you're just not sure what to do when you do see a distance, the best piece of advice I can do, say is to just stay the same, keep the same canter, keep the same track. Your horses, if they are doing, if they're at the speed you want and they're on the track you want, their rhythm should get you to the fence in a pretty organized fashion. And you might need to make some small adjustments the last couple of strides. The biggest mistake you can make is make too many adjustments too far away. You know, it's very rare for someone to see a distance who's not an, a very active professional who's jumping all the time to see a distance further than four or five strides away. If you do and you have a good eye, that's great, but but trust it and and trust that that's going, you know, what you see first is going to work out. But if what you see eight, nine, ten strides away looks like something that you have to micromanage and and do something about, it's probably wrong. So let it go. Ignore it. There's always another distance that's going to come up and trust your horse's canter as you get there. And just the last two, three, four strides say, what can I do to make these strides the best? And that usually means a little extra leg and go forward or pull on the reins and collect your horse and try to let them fit that step in. Well, that does it for today's episode of the Show Jumping Podcast. Be sure to find us on our Facebook group, Overheard on the Show Jumping Podcast, and send in your questions there or directly to me, Ashley at horseradionetwork.com. Big thanks to our title sponsor, Haggard Pharmacy and Reline GI. Keep your eyes up and your heels down.